Hey, Spark, so good to be with you. Uh, thanks for coming out to celebrate Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you, especially to those of you who are maybe new tonight or haven't come too often. It's great to have you join us. It's also great to have you who come often, and for those of you who have been coming here for nine years. Welcome, welcome. Today we continue in our sermon series called A Strange Way to Save the World. Now, Pastor Kevin started this series two weeks ago, and he talked about the virgin birth of Jesus. And last week, Pastor Danielle told us the incredible story of Jesus. If you remember, she said it's almost unbelievable, even scandalous. But it is also amazing when we see what God has done for us. And today we're going to discuss the strange way that Jesus came into this world as a helpless child. Do you ever wonder why, of all the ways in which God could have reached us, of all the ways that God could have saved humanity, he chose, in God's infinite wisdom, to send a baby? Not an adult like Adam, not an obvious Messiah, Not a soldier or a king on a horseback with a sword held high, crying out for vengeance and redemption in the name of the Lord and his favored nation. Not the chosen one who would have had the wisdom of Solomon, the charisma of David, the godliness of Moses, and the military genius of Joshua. But instead, God sent an infant, a baby, who was susceptible to all the harms of the world. And with his birth, everything changed. A new force had arrived to undermine the world's powers. The truth is, Jesus entered the world with no dignity. His parents were poor. They had no status. And he would have been known as a mamzer. A mamzer, which is a Hebrew word to describe a child whose parents were in a forbidden relationship where the parents were not married. Now, all languages have a uh, different word for mamzer, and all of them are ugly. Jesus, his cradle was a feeding trough. His nursery mates had four legs. He was wrapped in rags. He was born in a manger, targeted for death, and raised on the run. That's a strange way to enter the world. And Jesus, he would eventually die with even less dignity, convicted, convicted, beaten, bleeding, abandoned, naked, and shamed. Dignity on the level of a king is the last word you associate with Jesus. There is a king in this story, however. Jesus was born during the time of King Herod. To an ancient reader, Herod, not Jesus, would have been the picture of greatness. Born of a noble birth, leader of armies. Herod was so highly regarded by the Roman Senate that gave him the title King of the Jews. He rewarded his friends and punished his enemies which was seen as a sign of a great man in that day. He was so politically skilled that he held on to his throne for 40 years, 
even persuading Caesar Augustus to retain him as governor and king, even after Herod had backed Caesar's mortal enemy, Mark Antony. Herod was the greatest builder of his day. Author and scholar Richard Peterson wrote that no one in Herod's period built so extensively with projects that shed such a bright light on the world. He built aqueducts. He built a port at Caesarea. He built a massive fortress. And he lavishly refurbished the second temple of Jerusalem, where you can still see the massive stones from the temple today, 2,000 years later. Now, Jesus, when he grew up, he was a builder too. He was a carpenter. He likely did construction in a town called Sephorus for one of Herod's sons. But for Jesus, unlike Herod, nothing he built is known to have endured. In the ancient world, all sympathies would have rested with Herod. He was thought to be nearer to the gods, guardian of the Pax Romana, an advisor to Caesar. The definitive biography of him is called Herod, king of the Jews, friend of the Romans. And the two phrases are connected. Because if Herod were not a friend of the Romans, he would not be king of the Jews. But for Jesus... He would be called a friend of sinners, and it was not meant as a compliment. And he would be arrested as an enemy of the Romans. Herod ruled in a time when only the ruthless survived. He was a tyrant. He cowered before no one. He had ten wives. He suspected the ambitions of the only wife, he had ten, the only wife he truly ever loved, so he had her executed. He also executed his mother-in-law, two of his brothers-in-law, and two of his own sons by his favorite wife. But it gets worse. His well-instructed scores of prominent Israelites to be executed on the day he died so there would be weeping in all the lands of Israel. You see, Herod was ruthless. He probably would have been a great character in the HBO show Succession. Have you seen this show? They are ruthless. They are horrible. But I got to tell you, Logan Roy has nothing on King Herod. King Herod is much more ruthless. Caesar even remarked that it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod is considered by Rome to be the most effective ruler over Israel the empire ever had. No one would bear that title, King of the Jews, again, except for a crucified servant impaled for a few hours on a cross on a Friday afternoon years later. We're used to thinking as of Herod as the villain of the Christmas story, but he, he would have been considered great by many in his day especially by those whose opinions mattered most. How greatness came to look different in this world is part of what this story is all about. No one knew it yet, but an ancient system of dignity, of what dignity looked like, was about to collapse. The lives of Herod and Jesus intersected when magis from the east 
asked where they could find the one born king of the Jews. But when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He was upset because he was the king of the Jews, not this child. And then Herod got really mad. The scripture says, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I grew up in a church that did Christmas plays every year. We would dress up in bathrobes and pretend to be Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the wise men. But somehow that part of the story with Herod, the killing of those babies, never made it into the plays. It became known as the slaughter of the innocents. This is not the kind of story you write songs about. The night Jesus was born, all is not calm, all is not bright. And that little baby does not sleep in heavenly peace. Why? Because Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem into the homes of peasant families who are powerless to stop them. They break in and when they find an infant boy, they take out a sword and they plunge it into that baby's body. Then they leave. Philip Brooks wrote a famous song centuries later with the words, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. It's a beautiful song. We all know that song. We're going to sing that song a little bit later, right, Junior? But here's the thing. Bethlehem was not still when Herod came for Jesus. The Apostle Matthew, he underlined the pain that was going on, the pain of the gap between peasant and king with the words, Rachel weeping for her children. The rabbi said centuries earlier, uh, the Jewish matriarch Rachel had been buried in Bethlehem near the major road leading out of Israel so that she could weep for the helpless exiles leaving their home. And that continues. Soon more people would leave their home. Jesus' parents left their home and they went off to Egypt while Jesus lay helpless and unaware. Herod, who built cities and ruled armies, was called Herod the Great. But no one called Jesus the Great. In fact, Jesus is repeatedly given a different title by Matthew. He is called a child. The title child, especially in that day, would have been a vivid contrast with king or great. In the ancient status-ordered world, children were at the bottom of the ladder. Plato wrote about this. He said, the mob of motley appetite and pleasures one would find chiefly in children and with women and slaves. Pliny the Elder wrote that none among all the animals is so prone to tears. You see, to be a child was to be dependent, defenseless, fragile, vulnerable, and at risk. Those were not the qualities associated with heroism in the ancient world. 
A hero was someone who made things happen. A child was someone things happened to. In fact, in old stories about Hercules, he grabbed two poisonous snakes while he was still in the cradle and killed them with his bare, chubby little hands. And by the 2nd century and 3rd century A.D., people made up stories about Jesus having great power as a child. In one of them, in a book called Thomas, he makes clay birds come alive. In another, he magically causes the death of a child. But they are the kind of stories the Greeks made up to give their heroes dignity as children. And you need to understand the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have no stories like this about Jesus as a child. They show that Herod the Great made things happen, and things happened to the child Jesus. But there is a reversal going on in this story. The next season of Jesus' life is introduced with the phrase, After Herod died... In fact, three times in chapter 2 alone, Matthew mentions the fact that Herod is dead. Matthew wants the reader to know that with Herod the Great, with all his wealth, with all his glory, and with his crown, he is now Herod the dead. Herod has died. And this is a subtle reminder of a great leveler, because a new time had come with Jesus. A time when thinking about kings and children would begin to shift. You might say there was an idea lying there in the manger along with a baby. An idea that had mostly been confined to a little country called Israel, but which was waiting for the right time. To crawl out into the wider world. An idea that was wider into the wider world would be unable to wholly resist. All people in the ancient world had gods. Their gods had different names, but what they shared was a hierarchical way of ordering life. At the top of creation were the gods. Under them was the king. Under the king were the court and the priests who reported to the king. Below them were artisans, merchants, and craftspeople. And below them were a large group of peasants and slaves who were viewed as the dregs of humanity. These were the outcasts, the sick, and the poor. The king was thought to be divine or semi-divine. The king was understood to be made in the image of the God who created him. And here's the thing, only the king was made in the image of God. This was a dividing line between the king and the rest of humanity. Because peasants and slaves were not made in the image of God. They were created by an inferior God. Some theologians call this the dignity gap. The further down the ladder, the wider the gap. But that gap was challenged by an idea that lay there in the manger. An idea that had been guarded by Israel for centuries. That there is one God. That this God is good. And that every human being has been made in his image. Imagine what it did to the hearts of the supposed dregs of society to be told that not just the king, 
but they too were created in the image of the one great God. Male and female, slaves and peasants, all were made in God's image. God said that these human beings are to have dominion. That's a royal word, but it is no longer reserved for the few. Every human being has royal dignity. When Jesus looked at people, he saw the image of God. He saw this in everyone, and it caused him to treat each person with dignity. This is the idea to which that little baby in a manger was heir, which, would have, which had been given to Israel and which would be clarified and incarnated in his life in a way not seen before. The belief that all people are made in God's image has woven its way into our world today in a manner we don't often see. The United States Declaration of Independence states that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's a lot of ideas in that, right? That people are created, they're not accidents. That their creator gives them certain endowments and confers worth on them. And this worth means that they come with certain rights that ought to be respected by society to be considered good. This is true for all human beings because all are created equal. But here's the thing. This idea of equality of all human beings was not self-evident to the ancient world. You see, Aristotle did not think all men were created, and he certainly didn't think that women were created equal. He wrote that inequality, masters and slavery, slavery, was the natural order of things. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From their hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection and others for rule. That's Aristotle. So the question must be, who came between Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson to change this? To change what was considered the natural order of things? Yale philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff observes that throughout world history, human beings by nature tend to be tribal. We don't think of outsiders as having the same worth or rights. So what accounts for the emergence of this moral subculture that says every human being has rights? Well, Walter Storff gives an amazing answer. He says, the teaching of the scriptures clarified and made available to all the world through Jesus says that every human being is made in the image of God and loved by God. Yes, we have gradations. There are gradations of talent, of strength, of intelligence, and supposed beauty. But as Martin Luther King Jr. said in his American Dream sermon, there are no gradations in the image of God. The reason every person has great worth for Jesus is that every person is loved by God. Each person has what might be called bestowed worth. 
When my daughter was a young child, she had a stuffed animal that she loved above all others. She loved that stuffed animal so much that wherever she went, that stuffed animal had to go too. She called this stuffed animal Pinky because the stuffed animal was pink. Pinky got loved so much that over time, the material for her body began to tear Her stuffing began to fall out. Her button eye fell off, and she was so dirty. Pinky was not loved for her beauty, yet she was loved because, just because. We could never throw Pinky out. Our daughter loved Pinky, and we loved our daughter. Pinky had bestowed worth. We all know this kind of love, right? Get a pet. They can be so frustrating at times, chewing on our shoes, eating off your plate when you're not looking, but you come to just love them, not because they are so well-behaved and obedient, just because. Here's the point. Every human being is a child of God. We have bestowed worth, and we are loved by our King. But hear this. The ancient world did not teach this. The ancient world taught that ordinary children did not share the king's image. They were not created by the same God, and so they grew up in a different world. In the Roman Empire, some babies grew up to be women who were generally shut off from education and public life. Some grew up to be slaves who were needed for their labor, but were regarded as inferior to those who were free. Many babies did not grow up at all. In the ancient world, unwanted children were often simply left to die in a practice called exposure. The head of the household had the legal right to decide the life or death of children in the home. This decision was usually made during the first eight days of life. Plutarch The Greek philosopher wrote that until that time, until the eight days were over, the child was more like a plant than a human being. The most common reason to expose a child would be if the family lived in poverty, or if a wealthy family did not want the estate divided up, or if the child was the wrong gender, meaning a girl, or if the child was illegitimate. The Jews were opposed to exposure because of their faith. Since Jesus was regarded as a mamzer, the descendant of a forbidden relationship between two Jews, he would likely not have survived had Joseph been Roman. Abandoned children were often left at a dump or what they might call a dunghill. They most often died Sometimes they were rescued, but usually this was to take these children and to turn them into slaves. Babies that were disabled or appeared weak were often disposed of by drowning. Ancient Roman law says that a boy who was strikingly deformed had to be disposed of quickly. Now, to be clear, ancient parents could be as tender and loving as today. But children only had value to the extent that they could serve the state. And the state was embodied by Herod. So you see, in themselves, children were disposable. But then, the child born in Bethlehem grew up. 
He began to say things about children no one else thought of. One day Jesus was asked this question, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like a little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it wasn't the child's job to become like Herod. Rather, it was Herod's job to become like the child. You see, greatness comes to people who die to appearing great. And you should notice that no one else in the ancient world, not even the rabbis, used children as an example of conversion. Then Jesus said the kind of thing that would literally never enter the mind of another human being. He said, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. There were many clubs and associations in the ancient world. None of the qualities associated with children qualified a child to join any of these clubs. You see, there were no clubs for, for children until Jesus. Another time, some parents wanted to bring their children to Jesus, but the disciples stopped them. Then if you remember, Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Hear this. Jesus has a kingdom for children. Yes, even before Disneyland and Chuck E. Cheese, the little children came to him. As the movement that Jesus started spread, it created an alternative community for children. In fact, early instructions among his followers, such as the Didache, which was written in the second century, prohibit the widespread practices of exposure or infanticide. By the late fourth century, a Christian emperor, Constantine, outlawed the practice of exposure for the entire empire. Over time, instead of leaving unwanted babies at a dump, people began to leave them outside a monastic community or a church. The truth is, those who live in a culture truly touched and changed by Christianity view individuals different because of Jesus, whatever they may think of him. What does this look like? The ordinary and the lowly have great dignity. All children should live, and all human beings are created equal. The child in Bethlehem would grow up to be a friend of sinners, not Romans. He would spend, not a friend of Rome, he would spend his life with the ordinary and the unimpressive. He would pay deep attention to lepers and cripples, to the blind and to the beggar to prostitutes and fishermen, to women and to children. He would announce the availability of a kingdom different from Herod's, a kingdom where blessing, a full value and worth with God was now conferred on the poor in spirit and in the meek and the persecuted. People would not understand what this meant. Candidly, we still do not. But a revolution was starting a slow, quiet movement that began at the bottom of society and would undermine the pretensions of the Herods. 
It was a movement that was largely underground, like a manger around Bethlehem, where a dangerous baby might be born and hidden from a king. David Bentley Hart writes that, Since the birth of Jesus, babies and kings and everybody else look different to us now. The autistic or Down syndrome or otherwise disabled child, the derelict or wretched or broken man or woman who was has wasted his or her life away, the homeless, the utterly impoverished, the diseased, the mentally ill, the physically disabled, exiles, refugees, fugitives, and criminals. These were viewed by our ancient ancestors as burdens to be discarded. However, to see them instead as bearers of divine glory who can touch our conscience and still our selfishness. This is what Jesus saw that Herod could not see. This is a strange reversal. It's countercultural, but it is the way of Jesus. Where men who wear purple robes and glittering crowns and have gaudy titles, they begin to look ridiculous. And yet the figure of the child born in a manger seems only to grow in stature. For we see the glory of God in a crucified servant. And we see the forsaken of the earth as the very children of heaven. I love that Jesus came as a baby and not in a cloud of smoke and fire. I love that my king chose to humble himself and pour himself out in the form of an infant. I am thankful that Jesus was willing to walk in my shoes and in your shoes and experience the normal life we each lead. This is a strange way to save the world. And all of this happens because of the baby Jesus who came into the world helpless and with no dignity, but who changed everything. We're going to move into a time of communion right now. And as we go into to that, let us think, let us meditate that Christmas is coming and we're here to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And with that birth, as I was explaining through the sermon, it was to change the world. And that is what has happened. To give us a new vision of what it means to be good. To give us a new vision of what love truly means. And so, in a minute, when we start the uh, communion, you can just walk up to this table. The communion's at the front. Come up maybe through the center and walk out through the sides. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, this table is open to all of us. All are welcome at this table.